Today, in between, we've got Mother's Day, and so here's what I thought. I thought it'd be a great day to talk to you about the family. Uh, not just the family, I want to talk to you about your family. Can we do that? I want to talk to you about your family. It seems appropriate, right? Have parent commissioning to talk about the family. It seems appropriate. It's Mother's Day. We better talk about the family. It seems really, really relevant. I thought, man, of all the things we can talk about, this seems really relevant. You know why? Because we all got a family, right? Uh, none of us chose our family, Amen. Yeah, and some of us, if we had a choice, might have chose a different family. Don't say amen to that, all right? It just is true, right? Uh, because we, maybe we got oddities, weirdities, and we got weird people in our family. I don't know. Uh, how many of you, when you were a kid, tried to run away from home? Just you thought when you were three, I'm going to run away from home, right? I, I did. I made it to the ditch in the backyard, right? And, and then I thought, man, what am I going to eat? And then I ran back home, right? I mean, we got, all of us got families. If we're honest, a lot of us at different times, I say, man, I wish I could choose a different family. I thought it was really good to talk about the family, not just because it's parent commissioning, Mother's Day. We all have a family. Listen close, lean in. It's good to talk about the family because our culture is. Like, if you're paying attention, our culture's talking about the family. Like, our culture's trying to understand the family. They're trying to define the family. They're trying to figure out what the family is. Uh, you can you know, watch the political uh, fireworks, and there's a lot of talk about family and what a family is. Uh, you can go and turn the TV on. There's a lot of pictures and depiction of the family, the modern family, the Adams family, this is us family, all that kind of family, Right? I mean, everybody wants to give a picture of the family. And so it seems to be really, really important that we talk about the family. But not only that, it seems very, very appropriate because we just finished a series, listen close, called Long Story Short. And long story short, we were taking a look at the long story short of God's story, the Bible. And it seems really appropriate to talk about the family because of this, you can describe the long story short of God's story, the Bible, through the lens, you ready, of two families. That literally you can take the Bible and say, hey, I need to make sense of this, and I could help you make sense of it through the lens of two different families. Here's what we said, that at the very beginning, the God who has no beginning created, and when he created, he put into place and into play what it was that his ideal plan was, what his ideal plan to be executed was. And you're saying, Dan, how does all of that impact the family? Well, let me show you how it impacts the family. I want you to write it this way. When it comes to the family, God roots his ideal in creation. When it comes to the family, you can even put it this way, when it comes to my family, God roots his ideal in creation. Now, I want everybody to look here a second. I just want to be really, really honest because we're going to get honest here today, okay? What I'm going to share for the next 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes or so may be uncomfortable. It's going to be a little bit countercultural. Some of you might be hearing like, I'm not really a church person. I'm not a God person. I'm not a follower of Christ. And I may say something in the next few minutes that, that you disagree with. And I'm okay with that if you are. Like if you're here and you disagree with what I say. But I promise you as one of the pastors of this church, I promise this from the get-go. And I continue to promise it. I will share with you the truth of what God says in his word. And when it comes to the ideal about the family, God has an ideal. He started with an ideal, and his ideal is rooted in creation. You have your Bibles open. If you don't feel comfortable using the Bible, you can look on the screen, Genesis 2. We're going to look at verse 18, then go down to verse 20 and take that to verse 25. Genesis 2, ready? Verse 18, Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'd agree. I'll make a helper suitable for him. But for Adam, it says, no suitable helper was found. 
So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Everybody look here a second. I did a wedding yesterday, had one last week, and I did one yesterday, and I look at the couple, and I say this, and I'll say this to you, marriage, marriage, everybody looking, marriage was God's idea. It's rooted in creation. God's ideal is rooted in creation, and he says, hey, I created specifically on purpose with a certain design so that we could see this thing called marriage. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Here's the story. God made man and he looked around and said, I gotta have a helper for that man. He sees an elephant, he sees a giraffe, he sees whatever. He says, there's no helper there. And so he creates woman. He said, there's no helper for the man. That was not ideal. Man was alone. There's nobody for him to share life with. There's nobody like him. That's not ideal. So he made the woman and he sets into motion his ideal for the family. God's ideal for the family starts this way. Ready? Everybody look. One man plus one woman equals one marriage. That's God's ideal. God's ideal is one man plus one woman equals one marriage. I would say it's God's marriage math. One plus one equals one. One man plus one woman equals one marriage. Two coming together, becoming one. And what God says is what becomes one, no one should undone. He says when when two come together, they come together. It's a covenant. It is two becoming one. Now, here's what's interesting. His ideal goes on, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Listen, look here a second. God made them man and woman, male and female. And he said, I want you to come together as one. And then I want you to come together. That's God's addition, one plus one equals one, and then I want you to multiply, be fruitful and increase. God says this, his ideal is this, is that one man, one woman come together in this thing called marriage and they have babies, which, which begs this question, how are they going to do that? Some of you are like, I can't believe you're going to talk about this, Dan. I invited my mom to come today, right? Amen? <laughs> Don't worry, she already knows how this all works, right? <clears throat> she had you... But I'm glad you asked the question because I want you to flip a page over to Genesis 4. Some of you are like, oh, I can't believe we're going here. We're going to go here. Genesis 4, I love this, right? This is God's ideal. He said, I want the man and the woman to multiply. Chapter 4, verse 1, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man And later then, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Here's the deal. Please hear what I'm going to say now. Regardless if you're somebody who's a follower of Christ or not, 
when you look at the story of God, God created with a plan, listen close, and he designed his creation for his plan. He designed his creation for his plan. He said, my plan is one woman plus one man equals one marriage, and I want them in the middle of that one marriage that the fruit of their love produces children. That's what he's saying. In fact, some of you maybe uh, have an old Bible, old King James, and some of you love that. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, I grew, when I was a kid, that's what we read from. How many know what I'm talking about? King James Version. Oh, wow, more of you than I thought. Okay. And I remember like verses like this, they would say things like this. Adam knew his wife and became pregnant. You remember that? They would use the word knew. I remember as a kid, that freaked me out. I'm like, I know tons of girls, right? <laughs> like, I hope they don't get pregnant, you know? Just saying, right? You need to understand something. It's like, why did it say Adam knew his wife? Because the Hebrew word, right, if you like stuff like this, the Hebrew word for knew that is now translated made love, ready? Everybody, I can't make this up. The Hebrew word, you ready, is the word yada. You know, like you say all the time, yada, yada, yada. You'll never use that the same, right? <laughs> you know, they were doing yada, yada, yada. You won't think about that the same, right? That, I can't make that up. That is the Hebrew word. Everybody say yada. See, that's, you know Hebrew now, and that's the word. And why do I say that? Because it's important that you know that Hebrew word is so important because that Hebrew word, yada, is this ability to know in an intimate way. Here's what God wants you to know. Just a sexual relationship does not mean you're experiencing yada. Yada is this deep intimacy where I commit to giving and devoting my complete love to you completely. And what God's ideal is, is that a man and a woman come together, one plus one, one marriage, they multiply and make children. That's what he's saying. God's ideal is that the human being navigate, enjoy, make sense of life in a family. His ideal was simply this, is that physical, spiritual, emotional intimacy be enjoyed in a unique way in the covenant of marriage and that children be produced in the covenant of marriage and that they be raised and provided for and protected in the covenant of marriage. Now stay with me. I told you some of you feel uncomfortable and, and, and I'm okay with that if you are. Because if you begin to unwrap the rest of the Bible, it's like you begin to unwrap what, what was God's heart for the family? What's his ideal? Now, now everybody, I can tell I need to make this statement because I can see some, some different movement. And I just want to say this. I'm okay if you don't agree with what I'm saying. I'm glad you're here. Okay? And our culture wants to define what God thinks about the family. I think if we're going to define what God thinks about the family, we might want to lean into what God says about the family. Can, can we just say that? So let's, so let's just lean in and listen to that for a second because he begins to unwrap it. In the book of Ephesians, and he starts with husbands. And what I'm going to say is not going to sit well with everybody in the room, but I'm okay with that. We're going to just read it. Verse 23, a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He doesn't stop there. For husbands, this means love your wives. He doesn't put a period there. Just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her, 
In the same way, verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. God's ideal for the husband is this. If you're taking notes, I'd write this down. His ideal is that husbands love and lead like Jesus. That's his ideal for the husband, that you give up your life for the sake of your wife, that you serve your wife, that you lead by serving and loving your family. That's his ideal. He says, this is my ideal. I want men in this room, men, all men, look here, say, I love you guys. This is his ideal, that we lead by serving, that we love by sacrificing. God's ideal is never like, I am man in charge. It's crazy. Where'd that ever, where'd we come up with that? He's, he's very plain here. He has an ideal for women, for wives in particular. Look at Genesis 2.18 on the screen. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a, everybody read that word out loud. Helper, suitable for him. Key, I want you to remember that. If you write in your Bibles, you might want to circle that in Genesis 2. Then you tease that through to the New Testament, Ephesians 5. Here's what it says. It says, wives, uh uh-oh, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And the wife must respect her husband. Everybody look here because I'm going to go there. Okay, I am. We need to, right? We just do. Uh, I meet with tons of young couples in my office. I love it, right? And some of you I've met with, and we go here. And I love it when a gal will come in and they'll sit like this, because I have them read this passage and come back with what they think it means. And maybe you were one of these gals. I don't know. And you're like, and I'll say, hey, what'd you think of Ephesians 5? And I've had gals like, I didn't like it. What part didn't you like? That part. And I said, I understand that. I wouldn't either if I didn't understand it. I said, what if I told you that your husband was going to love you like Jesus and serve you like Jesus? And it's funny how 85% of the time their hands will go like this. Wow, that'd be kind of cool. You see, you got to read God's word in its context. Nowhere in scripture are men told to tell wives to submit. That's not what this is talking about. It's not like guys are the dictators, guys are the rulers, guys are... That's not what this is talking about. It's like, guys, if you'll serve... Here's what he's saying. I have an ideal for wives, and here's my ideal, that wives help and support like God. That's my ideal. That, that I created them specifically, and I would say even differently, so that they can build them up, encourage them, admire them. In fact, if you came to my office, and some of you will, because someday you'll get married, you'll come to one of the other pastor's office, I always draw a picture of what this looks like, and the picture looks like this, that In a marriage, here's the way it looks. It is a husband bending his life for the sake of his wife. It is a wife bending her life for the sake of her husband. If I took a pen and I just took that and went round and round and round and round, all of a sudden you have God's picture of marriage. And when you draw this circle, two people bending their life for each other, everybody look here, you have a letter. That letter is what? That's terrible. Did you guys go to school? That letter is O. And the letter O is the beginning of the word one. God's design for marriage is simply that two become one by bending their life into each other for the sake of each other. That's why this verse in Ephesians 5 is how he starts the whole thing off. He said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is his ideal. His ideal is that two come together and they make children. And so what's his ideal for children? Glad you asked. A little further in Ephesians, he says this. Some of you parents are like, I was hoping we would go here, right? Ephesians 6, 
Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you'll have a long life on the earth. What's his ideal for children? I want you to write this down. It's kind of plain. He wants children to honor and respect their parents. That's what he wants. I think the way this looks is this, is that for little younger children, this shows up in obedience, right? But for older children, I think the way we honor our parents is loyalty and thankfulness, recognizing their role in our life, respecting their role in our life, being thankful for their influence in our life. That's God's ideal, which leads to this. Well, if that's God's ideal for the children, what's his ideal for the parents? Well, he keeps going, verse four. He says, fathers, and he's not, he's not not including mothers. He's saying, dads, I want you to take the lead in this. He said, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Everybody look here a second. I didn't expect to get into all this, but it was just kind of, I just want to act like you're in my office. Let's just talk. There's a lot of dads in the room. I, I meet with a lot of angry kids. Honest to goodness, I meet a lot of angry kids. You know, there's several ways, dads, we can make our kids angry. You know, one of the ways we can make our kids angry is just by being angry ourselves. Can, can we just say this and don't amen? I'm not even being funny. There's a lot of angry men running around. And there's a lot of angry men who are dads. And, and, and you can tell by the way they talk to their kids. Like, you ever been around a dad? He's like, get your butt over here. Like, I mean, I've seen it happen in church. Right, row. <laughs> Let's just talk real for a minute. Who else on the planet would you talk to like that? You best not talk to me that way. I'm being honest with you. I ain't responding. Like, who else would we talk to that way? When did we feel like it's okay to talk to our kids that way? And then why are we surprised when they say, you get your butt over here. Where did they hear that? I wonder. See, we can provoke them by being angry, but you know there's another way we provoke our kids to anger that's a little more tricky, a little more subtle. You know how we do it? By being complacent. Some of the angriest kids that I've met come from homes where dads are absent. Oh, they live in the home, they're not involved. You see, what he's saying is don't provoke them to anger. Had to go there. He said, instead, dads, bring them up with the discipline instruction that comes from the Lord. Here's what he's saying. Parents, here's my ideal. I want you to coach and influence your children. Teach them, coach them, lead them, instruct them, encourage them. Cultivate in them a heart for God. God's ideal, and then we gotta fly. God's ideal, can we just say this, is one Man plus one woman equals one marriage. In the middle of that, I want you to multiply, and I want you to have kids. I want the dad to lead and love. I want the wife to help support. I want them together to come together as one team, one team together. I want children to be raised in the security of this covenant relationship. I want children to obey and respect and honor their parents. I want parents to coach and cultivate and lead their children. That's God's ideal. That's, he thought the thing up. He said, this is my ideal. But can we be real? God 
has an ideal when it comes to the family. The truth is this. My real family doesn't look a whole lot like God's ideal. You see, I can see it in some of your faces. That's why I told you the first however long was going to kind of be a struggle, right? Because some of you are sitting there and like, you lost me on point one. Like, like if, if we're just being honest, like what's real about our family doesn't look a lot like God's ideal. Some of you, and I can see it in some of your faces, some of you gals are sitting here and saying, I would die for a husband like that. But, but my husband doesn't lead, he's lazy, right? My husband doesn't serve, he's selfish. In fact, some of you, if you're honest, what's real is my husband isn't loving me, he left me. Some of you guys are sitting here and, and literally here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, I wish I had a wife like that. Like, that'd be great, somebody to help, somebody to support. But, but my wife isn't supportive, she's critical, my wife isn't helpful. She's opinionated and she's nagging and she's trying to sabotage the relationship. Like, like some of you are thinking, man, my wife isn't tender. She's bossy. She's complicated. What are you thinking? I can see it in your faces. And some of you are thinking, man, that whole thing about kids, wow, that would be great. I'd love it if my kids were respectful. Don't amen that, right? But my kids are rebellious. I'd love it if my kids obeyed, but my kids, I can barely get their attention. I'd love to have a time with my little kids where we sat and read the Bible together and all of that, like, I think the perfect family should. But my kids are like herding cats, amen? And the truth is, teaching them the Bible can be dangerous. I shared this a few years back. It's like my favorite story about our kids because... When our kids were really little, they were all toddlers in the footy pajama stage, you know? And a couple of them, we were still changing. Jennifer's out of town. This is my favorite story about one of our kids. And I was going to do premarital counseling that night, so my job was to get them to bed. And, and that's not easy. Anybody agree with that? Like getting them all pointed in the right direction. And, and this happened to be the night the couple came early. And, of course, when you're doing premarital counseling, you want them to think, man, you got all, everything together, right? <laughs> like he knows what he's doing. And, and my kids, I'm changing them. And, and, and the two boys... That night, I have two boys, one girl. They were cooperating. The girl, not so much. And I remember the, the couple sitting on the couch, and I'm sweating. Because we had, weeks before, taught our kids the Bible. I mean, we had taught them the Bible, and we had them memorizing the Bible. And one of the verses that we had them memorize was Galatians 6. You can look it up. We had them memorize in a version that said, don't get tired of doing good things. And my kids knew the verse, like, bam. This particular night, sweat's dripping off of me because my daughter will not sit still. I got her pajamas ready. I said, Rachel, get over here. I told her to go right, she went left. I said, I want you to go up, she went down. Everything I told her, she did the opposite. I said, Rachel, I need you to listen to me. She ran. The couple's looking at like, why are we here getting counsel from this guy? He has no idea what he's doing. I looked at my daughter and I said, Rachel, I am tired of telling you to get over here. She turned to me and she said, Dad, don't get tired of doing good things, is what she said to me. <laughs> oh, boy, is right. The truth is we want what's ideal. Some of you are kids and you're like, my parents are anything but what you described. They didn't coach me. 
my parents were too busy climbing the corporate ladder. Some of you are thinking, man, I'd love to have a dad like that. Some of you, when you think you're extended family, you think, man, I, I, my family is the kooky farm, man. Like I got an uncle that's opinionated. My dad lost his filter. I mean, you begin, to, you begin to think about your family and you're like, man, my family, what is real is not ideal. Everybody look here. I want to tell you something and let's see if we can't agree for a minute. All of us, all of us, everybody say it with me out loud, all of us belong to dysfunctional families of some sort or another. Listen, some of you are having a trouble agreeing with me. I do. I love my family. Wouldn't trade my family. I lead a dysfunctional family. Like I know you don't struggle with this. I lead a dysfunctional family. They are led by a guy who's dysfunctional. You know why? Because sin has affected us all. And can we right now, Mother's Day 2019, can we dispel the myth of the perfect family? Can we do that? Can we just dispel that? And can we just dispel the myth that there are perfect families because in some way or another, we're all flawed and dysfunctional, which leads to this question. Okay, Dan, God has an ideal, and my real doesn't look like God's ideal, and all of us are in that boat, right? All of us. So what's the solution? Like, I have people come in my office. I love it, right? And, And they're struggling with their real family. It's like it's a mess, it's like all gobbly goop together, and I don't know what to do. And I'll say, what do you think you ought to do? And here's what they'll say to me. I want a family like in the Bible. If, if you're not smiling right now, I would encourage you to go read about the families in the Bible. Because <laughs> you don't have to read very far to the families in the Bible are messed up. I, that's one of the things I love about the Bible. It's so real. Like, God doesn't feel like he has to pretend. Like, all you got to do is read the first book. And the story of God starts out with this wife who convinces her husband to do what God told him not to do. That's how the whole thing starts. And that guy didn't have the spine to stand up and say, I'm going to do what God wanted me to do. Instead, he listens. And then those two... Those two and their dysfunction is why all of us are dysfunctional. Not only that, but they raise kids. Their names happen to be Cain and Abel. And they take them to church. You can't make this up. And the older one kills the younger one at church. Like, you want a family like in the Bible? You keep reading. This is just the first book. You get to Abraham. Like, man, we want a family. Can't have a family. His wife says, go sleep with my servant. He does it. He's like, all right, you know. <laughs> they, have a, they, have, they have a son. God's like, that's not really what I had in mind. I, I want you and your wife to have a family. So they have a son. So now he has a son with his wife. He has a son with her servant. That family feud has been playing out in world history for ages. You read the book of Genesis, you have parents playing favorites, brothers disguising, uh, selling their own brother. You have rage and jealousy. That's just in the first book of the Bible. You read the rest of the Old Testament and you see Israel just feuding with each other over family feuds. By the time you get to the New Testament, you're like, they have to have this thing fixed. Certainly it's all better now. 
and you begin to read about Jesus' family, and they even had issues. They took Jesus to church when he's 12, and they left him there and forgot him. Amen? Like, somehow just having a family like they had in the Bible doesn't seem to be the solution. In fact, I love the fact God has this ideal, but he never ignores the real. God has an ideal, but he never ignores the real, and God's ideal is distorted by sin. In fact, if you read the story of Jesus, by the time he became an adult, everybody listen, I want to get serious, really serious for a second. By the time he became an adult, things had become a mess Men could divorce their wives for virtually any reason. Leaving women vulnerable and exposed in their culture. And the subsequent, stay with me, result of that was the marginalizing of children. And that's the world Jesus stepped into. See, I want to tell you something. I want to be really, really serious about this. And and you can send me an email if you'd like. But the further our society and culture gets from God's ideal, the further our culture gets from God's ideal, the more it's going to marginalize, minimize, and victimize women and children. See, God has an ideal. He never ignores what's real, so it leaves me with attention. Okay, what do I do with what's real? This is my real family. My real family doesn't really look like the ideal you just described, so now what do I do? Like, like is all lost? No, I want to remind you of what we said last series, and then we're going to land this plane. Here's what we said. God had his ideal at creation. It got ruined at the curse, but it was redeemed at the cross. I want you to write it this way. When it comes to my family... God redeems what's real at the cross. That somehow what's real about my family gets redeemed. That God takes messes and he makes them beautiful. God takes what's dysfunctional and he functions and brings hope into the middle of what's dysfunctional. You're saying, how does God redeem what's real in my family at the cross? Three really quick statements. I want you to write them down. It's gonna be so important. We're gonna, we're gonna go in the deep end for a second, okay? I, I'm gonna just talk serious. Can we do this? Everybody look here a second. At first service, I, I just, just felt this. It's not really in my notes. I just felt this. Can you pretend that you're in my office for a second? Can we pretend we're not in a big crowd? Can, can, can you pretend we're just talking? Because some of the things I want to talk to you about is just how I would talk to you in my office. If we were just talking about what's real. I got to be real, right? If, if, if I'm ever going to figure out how the cross redeems what's real, I got to be real. So how does the cross redeem what's real? Here's the first thing I want you to write down. Because of the cross, I can experience a picture of the ideal in God's family. Here's what I want you to know. God started at creation with this family. Sin distorted it. We said at the cross then, Jesus fixes what's broken. He repairs what's ruined. And what happens is God begins forming another family. When you read the Bible Another way they describe the church is this family. It is a family. Now, I want to clear something up. Just had a conversation with somebody yesterday, and this is a common misunderstanding. Okay, and I'm going to leave some of you uncomfortable. I get it. Okay, but but, but I feel like it's my responsibility to just tell you the truth every week, okay? Because you know I love you. I heard this yesterday. Dan, we're just all God's children. 
Sounds right. Sounds like a good bumper sticker. Get it on a t-shirt, right? Not accurate. God's forming a family. And we're not all God's children at this moment. In fact, I want to be really serious with you. I would doubt all of us in this room are. You're saying, what do you mean, Dan? All of us are God's creation. But not all of us are God's children because the way I become part of God's family is by accepting his invitation to be a part of his family. That's what it means to say yes to Jesus. By recognizing Jesus fixes what's broken, he repairs what's ruined. That's how I become a part. And when I say yes to Jesus, I become part of this family and I can experience something amazing. 1 John 3 on the screen says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. We should be called children of God. That's what we are. Reason the world doesn't know us is it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. That as part of God's family, when I say yes to Jesus, I have a Father who loves me. I have a Father who chased me. I literally have a Father who sacrificed for me. I have a father, the Bible says, who gives me all of the rights of being a son. Wow. The Bible uses this terminology that when I say yes to Jesus, we're adopted into God's family. In the first service, Pastor Adam Spies and Joe, they, they brought their, their son, Finn. And, and they, they stood here with their son, Finn. Now, if you watch the video, maybe you don't know who Adam is, their son, Finn, doesn't look like the two of them. And, and, and some people notice, I'm like, what? They adopted Finn. Finn is, is from another country. And I watched, if you could have watched Pastor Adam and Joe behind the scenes, I had the privilege to do that. It's, it's fascinating. Like, they began this process like a year ago. And, and, and a lot of thought and conversation. I watched as they sacrificed time. I watched it cost a lot of money. They sacrificed money. I watched as she went to China. I watched as they went through hoops to do everything they could to adopt Finn. Everybody listen. Last year at this time, that little boy in that video did not have a family. He was in an institution waiting for a family and I watched Adam and Joe move mountains to chase and pursue in order to bring him into their family. And today when he stood here with them, this little boy who did not have a family, who was simply one among many, now is a spice with the full rights of a spice. He is their son. He has the full rights as Cooper, Maggie, and Jenna. God says this, I'm putting a family together that Jesus fixes what's broken. He repairs what's ruined. He said, I'm forming this family and I want to invite you. I got a seat for you. I want you to accept my invitation. I'll move mountains. I'll pursue you clear to the cross. That's how much I want you to be a part of this family. Not only that, Hebrews 2 says this. Let's look at this real quick on the screen. We see Jesus made a little lower than angels for a little while who now crowned with glory, honor because he suffered death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. 
it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. I think it's this powerful statement there. But verse 11 is what I want you to see. The one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Everybody look here saying, what's he saying? God's putting this family together. And he so much wants us to be a part of this family that, that Jesus went clear to the cross to die for us, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And he said, he's our brother. Like we have a big brother who sacrificed his life so we could be part of the family. Anybody think that's good news? Like, that's good news. And then this big brother is alive. We celebrated that a couple weeks ago. And this big brother, you keep reading in Hebrews, he sticks up for us. Like, like we can be part of this family. We're brothers and sisters. We're all invited to the table the same way, Grace. Some of you are still like, I'm not sure God loves me. And God's like, man, I've been chasing you. I'm not sure God wants me in a family. God's like, I've been saving a seat for you. I just want to clear this up. Like, like what might sound good on a bumper sticker doesn't mean it's true. What might make us feel better this minute might not be true. The fact of the matter is God says, I'm putting a family together because I've fixed what's broken, repaired what's ruined at the cross, and I want everybody in this room, everybody in this room, to be part of my family, to say yes to Jesus. See, my question for you, and then I, I need to raise, are you part of God's family? Have you ever said yes to Jesus? You see, the cross does something else, and that's this, and I want you to write this down. It, it means this, that what's real is not the ideal, and so because of the cross, I can heal. I can begin to heal what's real in my family. Some of you in this room have real and deep hurts because of what's real in your family. Some of you are walking around with grudges because of family feuds, conflicts. Some of you have deep hurts and resentments, unresolved conflicts, unmet needs, uh, un forgettable atrocities have happened in your family, whatever it might be. And, and I meet people all the time in my office, and this is where I need you to transport onto my couch, and it's like, Dan, what do I do with all of this mess, what is real about my family? And, and I'm going to tell you what I would say if you were in my office. The only ointment I know with the power to heal, the only thing with the power to heal what's real in your family, you ready, is something called the gospel. The gospel doesn't just save us, the gospel is the power for us to walk through what's real in our life. You're saying, Dan, help me understand this. Well, I know this. Some of you are trying to navigate what's real in your family right now. In fact, some of you hope I keep preaching because you don't want to go to lunch with your extended family. That's just real. Because you're like, I'm going to have to survive two hours with people I can't stand. It's just real. Some of you, what's real in your family, you're like, man, if anybody else knew about it, they'd be mortified, but that's just real. And, and when people sit in my office like, Dan, what do we do with that? As a part of God's family, the only thing I know, the only thing I know to say to them is this, is the gospel is the power to navigate what's real in your family. And if you were in my office, I would draw you a picture because that's how I operate. And the picture I would draw you is this, is there are a lot of families that are train wrecks. And the reason they're train wrecks is because this is the way they roll their train right here. And some of you are feeling this right now. That the thing in the engine, the very front train, is my past, the hurt. She did this. He wouldn't do this. There's past hurt circumstances. And that's what's driving you. And because you've been hurt, 
it causes you to feel a certain way. And because you feel a certain way, I'm going to act a certain way. So my husband did this. It made me feel this. I will not forgive him because I feel hurt. I had a wife in my office not that awful long ago, and that's what she said to me. And I said, I understand why you wouldn't want to forgive him. She kind of looked at me and she said, well, that doesn't help. I said, I just tell you I understand. I said, my guess is if you run your marriage that way, it's going to be a train wreck. She said, that's why we're here. That old boy was sitting beside her, by the way. She looks at me and she's like, what's the solution? I said, hey, listen, I only know one. The only solution I know is to reverse the orders and to put the gospel in the engine. And the gospel is what drives how I act, and that pulls along how I feel. Here's what I mean. I, listen, listen, I just want to get real with you for a second. I, I don't forgive Jennifer because I always feel like it. Anybody not feel like forgiving your spouse sometime? Come on. Amen? All right, y'all aren't very truthful. I'm just telling you. All right, y'all a bunch of perfect people out there. Sometimes I don't feel like forgiving her. Sometimes she wants to forgive me, but I don't deserve it. We don't forgive each other because we deserve it or feel like it. We forgive each other because of the gospel we've been forgiven. And when I realize I've been forgiven, the way I act in response to the gospel is what the Bible calls worship, and it pulls how I feel. If you let how you feel run the show, you will be a train wreck. You see, the fact of the matter is, is I need to be real about how I feel, but I need to go because of what I know, and the cross redeems what's real in my family, which leads to the last thing we're done. Because of the cross, I want you to write this down. I can pursue God's ideal while not denying what's real about my family. Last thing and we're done. Okay? I can pursue God's ideal while... I continue to be real about what is going on in my family. Now, here's the deal. Brian, you can let them know i got about four minutes, okay? Everybody look here. Don't you dare look back there. Everybody look here. I saw you right back here. Listen, I need four, four minutes. What I'm getting ready to talk to you about is so important. It's so important, okay? Our culture and people air right now in one of two ways. People in church, out of church, doesn't matter. First is this. There are many today who deny what's real. They want to give this picture that everything's perfect. I usually meet with their kids. You see, you'll never heal from what's real until you're willing to be real. And you're only as healthy as your secrets. Look here a second. I meet with young adults and teenagers who come in, and they'll share with me their struggle. And I'll look at them and say, have you shared this with your parents? I could never do that. Why? Because they think we have the perfect family, and it would ruin everything. I'm like, really? Like, like somewhere along the way, parents, I just want to be real about this. I, let me tell you something. If you've got kids in the room, your kids are struggling or will struggle at some time or another. 
and, and somehow I want to create space where, where, where little boys who become teenagers can come and say, yeah, I'm struggling. And then not be like, you're going to break the image of the family. I can't believe that. And they got to find spaces to be able to find help. We got to be willing not to deny what's real. Not only that, but, but we got to be willing to confront what's real. Some of you in this room, we're just being real. I'm going to go here. Off script for a second. Some of you, your family is just such a mess and you cannot figure out how. And, and, and I meet with some of your kids. And I want to be tender and kind because some of you have split from your spouse. And you can't stand them. And they can't stand you because of what happened. I just had a, a young lady in my office not long ago, and she's like, I'm having a birthday party. And we got to have two because my mom and dad can't stand to be in the same room with each other. And all I'm saying is this listen, I want to be tender. I want to, only thing I know to heal that because I can tell you she is angry. She is hurt, she is frustrated, and it's beginning to alienate her from both. And I sat there, and my heart broke for her, and I'm like, what's the solution? And the only solution I know is if somebody who's part of the family of God says, you know something, I've been hurt, but what I need to do is somehow lean into the gospel. If I act on how I feel, it's going to be a train wreck but I need to act on something bigger, more powerful than me because there's a God who's forgiven me, served me. I did not deserve it. I was his enemy. I gotta begin being real about what's real in my family. But the second error is this, and then, then I need to be done. I want you to hear it from, from my lips. Our culture has given up on God's ideal. God hasn't. I'm going to just be honest with you guys. I I watch a lot of news and I watch a lot of pundits and politicians and all that and and they want to tell you, you know, I think God would think this about marriage or God would think this about the family. Listen, stop listening to pundits, politicians and personalities and celebrities and let's lean into God. Now, stay with me. I have a huge heart for a lot of you young adults in the room. And I think it's the gospel that gives us the power to pursue God's ideal. And his ideal is one man, one woman, one marriage. In the context of that covenant relationship, I want you to produce, coach, influence children to my glory and for my goodness. Some of you have given up on the ideal. And all I know to say is Proverbs 14 says this. There's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Some of you in the room are denying what's real, and you'll never heal. The gospel is the only thing that can heal what's real. And some of you in the room have never said yes to God's invitation to be part of his family. And this morning he said, I saved a seat for you. So Father, on this Mother's Day 2019... I pray that you would help us to leave here with a new understanding and idea that you have an ideal, that you don't leave us in the dark, 
but you also don't ignore what's real. And some of us are sitting here and we're trying to raise our kids alone because of what's real. Some of us are sitting here and, and we've been hurt awfully because of what's real. Some of us are sitting here and we feel abandoned because of what's real. And we need the gospel to be the ointment that heals what's real inside of us. Because quite frankly, some of us are going to run into family dinners right now. And we're going to run into families that need the ointment of that same gospel. And so God, I pray that you'd help it to start with us. And I pray for those who might be in the room who've never said yes to Jesus, that today, Mother's Day 2019, might be the morning they say, yes, Jesus, I believe you love me, that you died for me, and I want to say yes to your invitation to be part of your family. Thank you for loving us. I pray this in Jesus' name.